Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are uh, continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past several weeks in Paul's letter to the churches uh, in Galatia. Uh, It's in your Bible as Galatians. And we've seen uh, over the course of this letter what Paul is dealing with. He's writing to a church that he had helped to found, that he had planted three years earlier. And what he's seen happening is that uh, the churches there have started to move away uh, from the good news of the gospel uh, that he preached there. Subtly, they had started relying uh, somewhat on their own good works uh, to prove themselves worthy, to prove themselves right before God. Some had begun to rely on old markers of uh, ethnic and cultural superiority to puff themselves up over and against others. And so Paul writes Galatians to draw them back uh, to what is so good and new about the good news in the first place. Uh, to try to bring them back to the message that sits at the very heart of Christianity. And so uh, this morning, we are in Galatians chapter 3. If you are willing and able, would you please stand uh, as we read God's Word? Our reading today is Galatians 3, 10 through 18. Everyone who does not all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, ever since uh, home computers became a thing, if you remember when uh, we first started getting computers in our homes, uh, ever since that day, uh, basically all of our computers have run on one of two operating systems. Right? You're either on a PC running Windows or you're on an Apple uh, computer. Now our phones are largely on the same thing. You're either on an iPhone or on an Android. Uh, right? There's two operating systems uh, that run things. You know, uh, the computer companies even try to uh, sort people based on kind of different personalities uh, that have them. You might remember the Apple uh, advertising uh, campaign where there was the cool young guy that was Apple, and there was kind of the stodgy, nerdy guy that was PC. 
Uh, and they, they have this idea that there's different types of people that use different types of computers. If you go to the, you know, if you're in the, if you're at, you know, Bold Bean and Riverside and you open up a PC, everybody looks around at you because it's not, you know, it's, you're not, you don't quite fit in. Um, but there's these two operating systems. They can run uh, some of the same programs. They can run some of the same apps uh, on the different, differing operating systems. But at their base, at their base, they run on two different platforms. And what Paul is getting at in this passage of Galatians is that the human heart, human spirituality, uh, basically runs on one of two operating systems. That you either run on the operating system of law or on the operating system of promise. In most human religion, uh, most human attempts uh, to approach the divine throughout history and around the world have relied on the operating system of law, right? From, uh, from the earliest days of human religion, uh, law always operates uh, according to the formula if-then, right? If I do X, then God will do Y, right? So uh, in ancient days, if I make the sacrifice, then God or the gods will cause it to rain so that my, cop- my crops will grow so that I'll be prosperous, to other forms of that if-then formula uh, that masquerade uh, more Christianly, right? If I pray and read my Bible and go to church, then God will accept me. If I live a life of sexual purity before marriage, then God will give me a fulfilling and rich marital life, right? We live in this if-then law-based way. Even folks who don't, uh, don't claim religion at all, Uh, There's a secular style of if-then formula living, which is if I work hard and if I do the right things and if I try to be a good person, then the universe will reward me with a good job and a good family and these kind of things. The law always operates, if you do this, then you will live. The language of promise is different. The language of promise we see in, in the scriptures in places where he's, like where God says, I will be your people, and you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will bless you. I will redeem you. Right? If law operates in that if-then language, promise operates in the I will language. What God will do. And now, the problem is uh, that the Bible talks both ways. The problem is that God himself in the Old Testament uh, talks both ways. In the Ten Commandments, there's language like, if you honor your father and mother, then your days will be long in the land. Right? If you keep the Sabbath, then I will bless you. Right? There is this if-then language that operates uh, in the pages of the Old Testament. And so it is a tension uh, in the Bible, this tension between law and promise. And what was going on among these churches uh, in Galatia was that uh, the people that we'd, we've run into already, these Judaizing Christians, these uh, Christians who had come to Christ but from a, uh, an Israelite Jewish background, the way they resolved this tension between law and promise was they said, well, you know what? Law is the basic operating system, right? Law is the baseline. And you can add Jesus to it, Right? Jesus does do certain things within that paradigm, but he doesn't change the operating system. He doesn't change the fundamental way that we approach God. 
Yes, God promises certain things in the Bible, but the promises are more like an app and the operating system is law. If you keep the law, then God will keep his promises. And Paul, Paul, in writing to them, says, no, no. No, the basic operating system of God's life with his people has always been rooted in his promises. It's always been rooted in his resolve and his character, in his commitment to love and redeem his people. And to prove this point, to, to win out this argument, what he does is he basically traces the history of God's dealing with his people through Abraham and Moses and on into Christ, showing that the one dominant thread through it all, the operating system underlining all of it, has been God's faithfulness to his own promise. He tells us in chapter 3 that the law is bookended by the promise, right? That, that God's promise to Abraham came first, and it's ended by its fulfillment in Christ. And that the law operates in that context, and if you're going to understand it properly, understand it as it's meant to be understood, then you have to understand it in its context. To do this, he goes all the way back to God's dealings with Abraham. We looked at Abraham, uh, Abraham's life a little bit last week, because uh, he's going to reference it several times in Galatians, and he started that last week. But if you look at Genesis chapter 15, there's a couple of verses here. Remember, at this point, uh, Abraham is an old man. He'd left everything uh, that he knew, left his father's house, sut, uh, struck out on this adventure of faith that God called him on. And now as an old man without heirs, God approaches him in, uh, in chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And he, that's God, brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is a, an example that Paul's going to go back to over and over uh, in Galatians. And he's using the example of Abraham to show the way that faith works. He says Abraham trusted God. He believed him. He had faith. God made a promise that seemed outlandish to him, but that he and his old wife with no children uh, were going to uh, one day bless the entire earth, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them, that their offspring, as he says, would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand by the seashore. And it says that Abraham believed him, so he had faith in God's promise, and God credited it to him. As it doesn't mean that Abraham was a perfect man. He... Uh, at times in this journey of faith that he's on, he seems to doubt a lot. He seems to take matters into his own hands a number of times. He's not a perfect man, but God says on the basis of his faith, on the basis of his trust, that that for him is uh, righteousness, that he trusted God's promise, God's grace, and God's love. And so Paul said this, this is basically the way that God has always dealt with his people. Trust in God's promises received by faith, marking them as righteous. And so he goes on to say that the law that came along 400 and something years later uh, doesn't nullify that basic way of dealing with his people, right? Moses comes along, uh, the Exodus liberates his people uh, from slavery in Egypt, gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, all that God required of them. But Paul says, look, just because God gave them law, because God gave them commands, it was still always meant to be held in that context of God's promise, of his mercy. And Paul tells us 
that, uh, that, if pro- that, that these two operating systems lead to vastly different versions of the Christian life, right? That if the promise is central, then what counts most in our lives is God, who God is, what he commits to, what he does, what he offers. And what matters to us is simply receiving who God is by faith, trusting in him, relying on him. But if law is central, then what matters most is us. It's our obedience, our good works, our commitment to him. Right, and those two things, they might lead to people doing some of the same things. Right, people may try to keep the Ten Commandments out of those same two principles. Two people may still be trying to not murder or not commit adultery or not steal. But if one's coming from a place of fundamental self-reliance through the law and one is entrusting in God's promises, that it'll lead to this vastly different inner life. It'll lead to this vastly different uh, approach to all things pertaining to God. I remember uh, as a kid, I was uh, probably in middle school at the time, and promise keepers was a big thing. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but there was this, it was a nationwide, really worldwide men's ministry movement kind of thing. And uh, they packed stadiums, right? I remember uh, back when it was called the Gator Bowl, a bunch of us went uh, to downtown Jacksonville and went to this Promise Keepers rally. And it's a bunch of guys who, I mean, it's kind of cool, right? You, you know, the thing that you get from a football game when everybody's cheering for the same team, it captures some piece of that same thing where you get excited, you get energized about your faith. You hear, you hear from speakers who are just awesome Christian men. They're, you know, football players and coaches. And you're like, man, I can, if I follow Jesus, if I keep my promises, I can have that kind of family. I can have that kind of career. I can do that kind of thing. Except for the scriptures tell us that there is, that all of us are promise breakers uh, more than we're promise keepers. Right? If we, if we could spend hours, if we went around this room and just listed the promises that we've made to God, Right, God, if you get me over this stomach bug, I swear to you, I'm going to eat better. Uh, if, you, uh, if you get me out of this jam that I'm in, I promise I'm going to go to church every Sunday. God, I promise uh, if, you, if you give me this thing, if you give me this promotion at work, I swear I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to forget tithing. I'm going to give 20% of everything I get. Right, Most of our lives with God are this history of broken promises. History of these commitments that we've made, thinking that we could do it, thinking that we could keep it, uh, only to fall short again and again. And so it's good news, it's amazing, incredible good news that God himself is the promise keeper, right? That he's the only one who makes promises and keeps them over and over again, who's faithful to us when we're faithless towards him, who always keeps his promises. And yet, uh, for some reason, there is something deep within us that prefers the law to the promise, right? You would think this is a, like, this is a no-brainer of a deal, right? On one hand, I relate to God on the basis of his grace and his goodness and his promise, and on the other hand, I rely on my own, my own grit, my own hard work, my own morality. You'd think that this would be a slam dunk of a sales pitch that we would trust the promises of God. And yet, there's something in our hearts, there's something in my heart that prefers law to promise, that would rather have a system of living that had clear expectations, that told me, if I do my part, if I work hard enough, if I say no to the, right, if I say no to the wrong things, say yes to the right things, then my life will go the way that I want. 
right? That if I uh, raise my kids according to, according to certain principles, then they will turn out in the way that I hope. If I approach God uh, and keep his commands, then he will keep me healthy and wealthy and doing well in life. I think we prefer it uh, because as terrifying as it is to rely on ourselves, it at least preserves some sense of control over our lives. Right? That even if the demands seem harsh, that if I can keep some sense of control, some sense that if I work hard enough, I have a hand in the outcomes, that I can get what I want from God. Right? If God is a scorekeeper, right? If God is a scorekeeper in heaven, uh, then I may feel guilty when I don't score, right? When I lose. But at least I know that my good deeds are getting, you know, written down somewhere. At least I feel like I have some way to influence uh, what can seem in life uh, like the chance uh, that is suffering and, and struggle. We want to have, uh, Americans love a meritocracy, right? We love the idea uh, that you get what you work for in life, right? That we build our own outcome. And we love to be able to turn even religion, even spirituality into a meritocracy with God, that we earn what we get uh, from him. And yet Paul tells us that there is uh, one giant problem with our love of law, which is that none of us ever uh, has been able to keep it. Right, he says, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He quotes uh, from Deuteronomy 27 in verse 10. He says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. This, these, uh, this chapter where he's pulling these quotations, there's this moment in Deuteronomy 27 where God's people, uh, having been set free from slavery in Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land and God uh, is giving them his law. He's ratifying the covenant that he makes with him, with them. And remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel after Israel's 12 sons. And the, the 12 tribes split up. Six of them go up onto one mountain, Mount Gerizim. Six go up to another mountain, Mount Ebal. And so they're sitting on two sides of a mountain with a valley in between them. In six tribes, the six tribes that are on Mount Gerizim, shout out together the promises of the law what God promises to do for his people if they keep the law. And the other people, the people that are on Mount Ebal, the other six tribes, they shout out together and read the curses of the law. And one of those curses is, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. That would have been a heavy moment if you're an Israelite. To be sitting there and chanting back and forth. If, I imagine if you're, if you're a Gator fan, you've been at the, the swamp when they do the half the stadium yells orange, half the stadium yells blue. Brings a tear to your eye. It's so beautiful. And, uh, and here they are shouting the blessings and the curses at one another to remember uh, the starkness of what God has invited them into. This relationship with him where they follow his law and there is blessing on the one hand and curses on the other. And the curse is so searching. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm their entire lives, conform their entire lives to the law of God. 
all who rely on the law are under a curse, he says. So let's pause here. Because I don't think there's many of us that think of our lives as being lived in the law. Right? I don't think there's many of us that, that, that wake up in the morning and go, you know what I've got to do? Uh, is I've got to go out and I've got to keep God's law. And if not, I'm going to be cursed. Right? I, but I th- how many times do you hear people say something like this? You know what? At the end of the day, I just hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Right? Or you know what? I like to think, of, I like to think that in the end, God is going to look at my life. He's going to see that I tried. Right? He's going to see that I really did, I did my best. Whatever God there is, he's going to look at my life and he's going to acknowledge that I tried my best. Or how about, you know what, I think that ultimately what matters, it's not what you believe. It's just that you try to be a good person. Right? I try to be a good person. I try to be uh, open-minded. I try to be tolerant. I try to not be a jerk to people. And I think that's, that's really what matters. It's just that you're decent. Right? Those things don't sound like you're saying, my ultimate goal in life is to prove to God that I'm a good person. But it's basically what it is. It's basically saying that at the end of the day, I hope that my goodness is enough, right? That I, that I was open-minded and forgiving and kind and loving. And I hope that God looks at that and says, yep, that's good enough for me. You tried. And functionally, that is a relying on the law operating system. The belief that that God is a scorekeeper, that he's an accountant in heaven who's keeping the books, and that one day uh, we will be either accepted or rejected by God on the basis of our lives. And so Paul goes to another uh, place in the Old Testament where God announces his curses, right? This this time it's from Leviticus uh, chapter 18. And here's what he says in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I imagine this was a verse that he knew well. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That was uh, something that the Israelites knew. Uh, It was the idea that anyone who was crucified, anyone who who suffered death by hanging, a way to die, certainly it was a physically terrible way to die. It was a way of death that brought an immense amount of shame and weakness and exposure and vulnerability along with the physical suffering. And so the Israelites, uh, in their own lives, uh, they focused on if someone did die in this way, to get their body off of the cross or off of the tree as quickly as possible uh, so that they didn't have to bear that curse uh, for the rest uh, of their memory. And so this must, be a, this must have been a verse uh, that the early church had thrown in their face often because everyone knew how Jesus had died, that he had died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, that he had been stripped naked and nailed to the cross, a spectacle, a laughingstock. And it must have been a line that the early church heard that this cannot be the Messiah, right? Jesus cannot be who you say that he is because he was crucified. And we all know that anyone who's crucified is bearing a curse. We all know that they're wearing their shame and their exposure. So whatever else a Messiah might be, he cannot be someone who's crucified. 
He can't be someone who suffers that kind of defeat. And Paul's answer is, yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus wasn't cursed because of his own failings. Jesus wasn't cursed because of his own breaking of the law. He was cursed for ours. He was cursed so that all of those curses that rained down on his people uh, from Mount Ebal might find their, their fulfillment on Calvary. That all of the law-breaking was concentrated there on the cross so that Jesus himself could become the curse, wear the curse, so that we could receive the blessing, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Paul's painting this picture where the entire biblical story leads to the cross. He says, you want to know what the if-then language of the law was all about. And we're, going to, we're not going to say everything there is to say about this. There's going to be more next week. But he said what, essentially what it was all about. He says elsewhere that, you know, apart from the law, we don't know what sin is. Right? Until somebody told you uh, not to commit adultery, to not steal, to not murder. We didn't know uh, that those things were sin. Right? To, to take it another level until Jesus came around and said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who holds lust in their heart is guilty of adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say anybody who's angry has committed murder. Until, until the law brought clarity to those things, we didn't know what they were. We didn't know uh, the predicament that we were in. And so essentially what God is doing through the law is when in one people in Israel is bringing sin to light. So that in their life, they come to realize their inability to, to keep the law. They come to realize the cursedness of life under law. And then concentrating that down further and further until finally it's on Jesus on the cross. So he resolves the curse of the law in Christ and resolves the promise to Abraham that through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed by God's grace. He does this thing in the second half of the chapter we read, where he says, he didn't make the promise to Abraham's offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Right, that all of the promise was focused on Jesus so that he deals with the curse in his own body and he opens up the prospect that God has finally kept his promise to resolve the curse of the law so that we can relate to God by grace through faith. So what does this mean for us? Three quick things. What does it mean for us that we can relate to God on the basis of his promise, not on the basis of law? First, it means that God always relates to you in a way that's rooted in his promise, not rooted uh, in your obedience. Right? This means that God's love for you his love for you, if it's based on his promise, then it has to do with his character, his commitment to love you because he is love, because he is a loving father. And it means that looking at your obedience, right, looking at the, what you do with your life is a, is a poor guide at, what, at figuring out how God feels about you, right? My obedience does this uh, on an hourly basis, right? I wake up and read my Bible in the morning and feel good, at my, feel good about myself, and then my kid talks back to me when we're trying to get ready for school and I lose my temper. So it's a little bit in the piggy bank and then a little bit out, right? Our obedience is a terrible measure of how God feels about us because God's feelings towards us don't waver. He doesn't love us better on our good days and less on our bad days. 
He doesn't love us more when we give more, less when we give less. God's love, his promise, removes our actions out of the equation of his love. Now, what we do with our lives matters, right? We're going to talk some more about that in coming weeks. What we do with our lives towards God and towards our neighbors matters. But it doesn't matter uh, towards God's acceptance of us. I had the occasion not too long ago, I was talking with a friend uh, whose son had been arrested. And he hadn't yet gotten to to see his child uh, since he had been arrested elsewhere in the state. And all he wanted to do was to see his son uh, so that he could look him in the eye and tell him that he loves him. He said, I know, I know that he, he doesn't want to talk to me. He's worried that I'm going to go off on him. He's worried that I'm going to berate him. He said, all I want him to know is that I love him. All I want him to know is that this changes nothing about my love for him. In that moment, he wanted him to know that lawbreaking, has, you know, it, it has consequences. He's in He's in jail. He's got to deal with those consequences. But one of those consequences isn't the loss of his father's love. Right? That is one thing that's not on the table of something that can be lost in his life, that he loves him. And he loves him not because he's good, not because he does well, but because he's his father, because he loves him as a father. And that's how God loves us, that he doesn't use his love as a motivating carrot or stick. Right? Do good and I'll keep loving you. Do bad and I'll retract it. He says, no, no, when you you break the law, when you sin, when you hurt yourself and others, it breaks my heart. There might be real consequences to it, but one of those consequences isn't losing your standing before me as a son or daughter, because that's rooted in the promises of God. So we relate to God on the basis of promise. We receive the law in light of that promise, right? The, The law... Uh, in Paul is not a bad thing, right? He, says, he has some pretty strong words towards the law in this chapter, right? He says that the law is not of faith. And yet elsewhere, he does speak positively of the law. Jesus himself said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? What Paul says about the law is that it's not, the, the law is good. It's just not any good for saving you, right? It can do lots of wonderful things for you. One of those things is not getting you to heaven. So what he's saying is it's got to be read in its context. When read in the light of God's promises, the law is a a reliable and good map for what it means to live a faithful life before God, right? It's a map of how we can glorify and honor God with our lives, how we can love God and love our neighbors, that it is a reliable roadmap, uh, but it's not powerful to save us. One great analogy uh, of this is imagine uh, that the spiritual life is a journey. Uh, You're getting your car and you set out on it. You need to know that the law is a good map, right? It's good to have a map when you go on a road trip, right? I remember the old days of having a map in your glove box that you had to pull out and chart and find out where you were going. Right now, of course, that's, that's uh, that's all electronic. But you need to know where you're going. And the law is a good map. But you can't run your car on the map, right? The map is powerless to actually get you from point A to point B. It can show you the way to go. So the gas in the tank of the car is the gospel and the spirit, right? That is what can power the vehicle. That's what can keep you moving in the Christian life. It's the reminder that God lives his life by his grace in you and through you. 
David in Psalm 119 says, you set my heart free to run in your commands. Right, that he's received because of his knowledge of God's grace, the, 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 the realization that the law, his commands are beautiful and good and that he's made for them. So we receive the law in light of the promise. And then finally, this means that we can relate to others by promise instead of law. Right, it's amazing uh, when you live your life with God on the basis of law. If I do X, then God owes me Y. That cannot help but seep its way into how you relate to the people in your life. That you relate to people on the basis of an if-then contract. Right, if you do X for me, I will do Y for you. Right, even, I mean, if there's any, any relationship in our lives, if you're, mar- if you're married, uh, that should be uh, clear to us is on the basis of promise, not law. It's marriage, right? You actually start your marriage by making promises to one another, right? You should remember that. And yet, how quickly does, do, our, do our marriages turn into an if-then contract? I guarantee you that if we, were, if we could honestly poll the married people in this room, it would not take you long to think of one thing, one household thing in your house, that you know that you do a little bit more than your spouse, and it, and it bugs you, <laughs> right? I'm, you know, I, why am I always the one unloading the dishwasher, right? And maybe you do a good job about not saying it, right? But, but with the way that we hold grudges against one another, the ways that we compete even within our marriages about who's doing better, who loves each other more, who sacrifices more, it becomes an if-then contract. We relate to our children on the basis of this if-then contract, right? Even though you would never tell your kids, if you get an A, then I'll love you, right? The, the, we can set an expectation uh, in our house, right? That things go just a little bit better when you do good uh, than when you don't, right? We, we, we can't help it. We're law-loving people. Life makes sense when we have these contracts with each other. And it makes it so that we're not safe people to fail, right? It makes it so that I I love you as long as you fulfill your end of the bargain. But as soon as you fail me, uh, you can't rely on my grace, you can't rely on my forgiveness, you can't rely on my compassion. But when we're freed by the gospel to recognize God deals with us surely on the basis, purely on the basis of his grace, on his commitment to love us no matter what then we find the freedom to actually begin to love other people in that same way. And you become someone who it's safe to fail. It's safe to let you down a little bit. Because you're not someone like God. You're, you're, you're someone who doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Someone who doesn't keep a constant running scorecard uh, of the people in your life and how they're doing by you. So you find a freedom to relate to other people on the basis of grace, on the basis of mercy. So much of the Christian life uh, is learning to love others as God is loving us, right? It's learning to, to relate to others as God relates to us on the basis of committed love and mercy and grace. So the question is, uh, what is the operating system that powers your life, right? Are you running on that basic operating system of law or of promise? Paul's invitation, he says here, He says, we all have a tendency to default back towards law, right? The Galatians, after three short years as a church, were now defaulting back to operating on that old operating system of of law. He says, no, no, it's so much better, so much sweeter 
to relate to God on the basis of his promises and to relate to one another on that solid foundation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. Thank you.